Welcome. I am joined today by Derek Guy to continue our series of conversations about uh, what's going on in Louisville and the world with the protests following the death of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd um, and talking about some of the things that are maybe not getting heard in that and just trying to listen to how different people feel about that and what they have to say. Thank you for joining me today, Derek. No problem. Um, so I guess just to jump right into it with the big $64 question, as a queer black person, what does this feel like for you? I mean, it feels complicated a little bit because as a black person, I'm super proud of like the movement right now. And I think that as an entire country, African-Americans are tired and that is where this revolution is coming from. And I think that it's beautiful to watch, but I also feel sad as a queer person because I feel like the black community isn't necessarily looking at the queer voices that we've lost this year as well. So I think that there's a little bit of a disconnect in the movement right now between being black and being queer and identifying as both and having those um, having those voices uplifted and heard during this movement right now is just being, you know, it, it feels a little bit complicated, but like as an African-American, as a black man, I'm proud of this revolutionary. I just want to make sure that like queer black voices are being heard as well in this revolution. It's interesting to me that even now we still have this divide where people feel like the LGBTQ community and the black community are two different groups and they don't overlap. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, that's amazing to me that that still is so ingrained in all culture, you know, in LGBT culture, in black culture, I think, and in white non-gay culture there's still this sense that these are two different communities. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think that in African-American culture, it's often talking about LGBTQ stuff is often taboo. And like for the longest, my sister who identifies as a lesbian has a roommate because that's just how African-Americans, especially from the South, I'm from South Georgia. So especially from the South, having this mentality of like, no, we don't really talk about that. That's a, that's a different issue. That's a different problem, um, which is concerning because I always think of the quote, like, we're not free until we're all free. And I think that that, like, that, that manifests in this conversation a lot. I think there's a interest in a lot of white LGBTQ people in um, remembering that black and brown LGBT people, trans people were pivotal at Stonewall, have been pivotal in all of these moments. But I don't know, there's always a part of it that seems like that's a talking point. People, People embrace it, they believe it, but... I don't know, they don't put it into action. 
Exactly. I think that I struggle with that so much about a lot of organizations uplifting for the month of June, uplifting Marsha P. Johnson's voice. And then for the other 11 months of the year, forgetting that like black and brown trans people started this movement and having their voices erased in the 11 months out of the rest of the year is just a huge, it's a huge concern and it's a huge, like, it it makes you frustrated with the movement a little bit. Absolutely. And, and I feel like we, at least superficially, maybe we're a little bit better about it than we were 20 years ago, but there's still so much uh, work to be done, so much of a, of a gap. Yeah, I definitely agree. Do you think that intersectionality sometimes is part of the problem? That like we almost do this all issues matter to ourselves? Oh yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think that we, especially as a queer community, um, I've often said that marriage equality was great for us and it set us forward, but it also set us back a little bit because there's this idea that because we have marriage equality and we are almost in this heteronormative acceptance that, okay, we're done fighting, but there's still so much more that like we have to fight for in the LGBTQ community. I just think there's a huge disconnect with, that idea that we're already done, that we've gotten there, that we have our equality, which we're not there yet. Uh, We talked a little bit before we started this about some of the names that are not getting heard, not getting said as much. Yeah, I don't want to, you know, they're not totally forgotten. There are people who are bringing up these names, um, but let's talk about them for a minute. Yeah, I think that Tony McDade's death is weighing more heavily on me than all the other deaths because he was a black trans man. And I think that it's, it hits harder when there's like someone who identifies in the same way that you do. And to also know the black trans men are getting killed by police officers as well. It's just, it's stressful and it's frustrating, but it's also frustrating because they're getting left out of these conversations. So it's almost like their transness has erased their blackness a little bit, which is frustrating because he was still a black man. He was still murdered by police officers. And there seems to be a disconnect with including him in this movement. Even local people have reached out and like I've had conversations with them about like this is this is what happened in Tallahassee this is why we need to uplift Tony's voice um and some of them have just been clueless which I am surprised but also not surprised because there's such that disconnect within the movement between queer voices and black voices being uplifted so And just recently, another person uh, was a victim of an attack, uh, fortunately was not killed, um, but was was very critically wounded, Um, Ayana Ayana Dior. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was in Minneapolis? Yes, which was 
heartbreaking because Minneapolis is doing so many great things right now as far as their social justice movement and Black Lives Matter there is doing some amazing things and they're um, they're really holding holding the police officers accountable, which is great, but also 20 minutes after a protest for 30 black men to attack a black trans woman and to call her all kind of names and just be so disparaging on her life. It's just, it's mind boggling to me to really, to really hold the conversation as far as like, she is not, she is not being uplifted and respected in this conversation, which is frustrating. You know, is there a sense that that identity is not taken seriously oh, in the yeah, community, I, or I definitely think that like the I think that the black community has come far when it's in relation to LGB issues, but I think they are still learning about transgender and non-binary and queer identities. I think that they're still confused by it. I think that it's still something that's mind-boggling for people. And I think that it's something that still continue, it's still something that we need to work it through as a community. As a community, we still need to have more conversations about what it looks like to be trans and Black and why, like, out of everyone, Black transgender women are probably the most, like, victimized out of the entire spectrum of individuals. I think that that's stressful and frustrating, but we have work to do with it. People can fairly easily understand that some parts of the white community are very aware of and understanding of LGBTQ issues and other parts of the white community are not. And some are, are all sorts of the way along there, but it feels like people, and maybe I mean white people here, need the black community to be in, to have one position. It's like, it's still, people want it to be a monolith, you know, yeah. The black community is homophobic or the black community is not homophobic. Like there's not this understanding that there's a spectrum of places where people are. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think that there is a stereotype that the black community is homophobic. And I think that to a certain degree, that stereotype is uplifted in some of the conversations that famous or more prominent African-Americans have and some of the disparaging things they say about LGBTQ individuals. And I think that that's why people have this understanding or this mentality that um, the African-American community is homophobic. Um, but it, like you said, it's on a spectrum. Like, just like, I can't speak for all Black people one other person who may be homophobic is not going to speak for the whole community as a whole. Um, but I definitely see when times like right now is happening and we have this revolutionary 
movement happening. I definitely do have concerns when I see people like Ayana and Tony being left out of the conversation. And I don't think it's intentional. I think it's just not knowing and not having that information. I think that a lot of times um, trans people talk to trans people. So when something happens in the trans community, the trans community finds out a lot quicker than the heteronormative community or the cisgender community, which is unfortunate, but I think that there needs to be a better bridge of communication between the communities. Does the racial divide fall in the uh, transgender community as much as it does outside? Yes, I definitely think it does. I think that like even as we're having this conversation around protests, I have had conversation with white trans individuals who are confused by the protest or concerned by the protest or don't actually understand it. And I think that there's definitely a disconnect of like where where they live, where they, where they have community at, and where their ability to empathize with another community is a little bit lackluster than I'd, I'd want it to be. That's why I'm having these hard conversations with white trans people around like, no, this is a big deal, and this is a huge deal, and we want you a part of this movement. We need you as allies, but we need you as allies in the right way. That's, I think that was a, a, you know, a um, common hopeful hopes being dashed moment for a lot of people is that this experience of being gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, you know, will open people's eyes to being more empathetic and understanding of other minority groups. And I think there's a, there's a, two-fold thing there where a lot of people in the LGBT community think that, oh, I get it. I'm a minority too. And I think a lot of times we expect people to get it more than they do. Mm -hmm. But that's, there's no automatic getting it, is there? There isn't, especially when you haven't done that work to get it. I think that there, to be a true ally and a true advocate, there's work that's done behind that. Like, so you have to educate yourself. You have to put on the other person's shoe for a little bit, like my grandma would say. So you have to put yourself in someone else's predicament for a little bit and really feel what it feels like to be in their shoes. Um, I think that that's, that's hard, especially for people who are already in a minority. So they already feel like they get it because they've been discriminated against in some fashion. But when your whole life is a minority, it's hard for you to be able to step away from that. So like when you are, when your minority is something that's based upon when you can look at someone and you know that they are a minority, that reigns differently to me than my transgenderness because people can't automatically tell that I'm trans. People can automatically tell that I'm black and right off the bat, they're gonna, they have those prejudices lined up right off the bat. So I think that there is a, a disconnect between people really being able to fully empathize with other minorities right now. 
I remember the first time I heard somebody who was African-American say, I think all white people are racist. And it was in a room full of activists and it was predominantly white activists. And we were at some kind of training and it was, so this was a well-meaning room of people. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that struck me at the time as like, what, what on earth is this person talking about? And it was, you know, it, that was a seed that grew over the years to me understanding that and to you know i i have the opinion now that any white person raised in america cannot help but be racist because that's the world we live in that's the signal we get and it's not about not being racist it's not about turning that off it's about recovering from that taking it into account and doing other things no i definitely agree i think that there is the United States is recovering right now. I think that's an amazing way of putting it. I think that we have been injured for a very long time and this country is trying to heal itself and black and brown people are trying to heal themselves and they need they need white allies to be able to do that. And it's, you know, we often as white people who are wanting to be part of this struggle, we often put more burden on black people in it by saying, you know, what should I do? What should I do? What can I do? Tell me what to do, you know, or putting all of our emotional baggage of dealing with this on you, Mm -hmm. you know, me going to you and say, boy, it's really tough for me to deal with, you know, my internalized racism. Like, well, that's not your job. Exactly. (laughs) Unless you're my therapist. it's hard because I will be a therapist here soon, (laughs) but I think that there's that stressful part of like having, wanting to be helpful for my friends, but also I can't do the work for you. Mm -hmm. So there's this sense of like, what do I do next? And I'm like, there is Black Lives Matter is doing a really good job of holding people accountable on their Facebook. There is days and days of action planning happening right now. And I think that um, it's sometimes easier to ask your Black friends, what can I do that'll make you feel better? Because then you feel like, okay, I got this just I got this instruction from Derek and Derek said he is going to feel better if I do this. So I can do that. Um, but that's still emotionally exhausting on me to be able to put out that instruction. Your job is not to validate me. Um, I think sometimes we, we choose things because they feel good or they look good or they do good. Mm-hmm. And ideally you can have a strategy that is all three of those, right? It's going to exactly. feel good and look good, but also actually accomplish something. But I think there's a lot of, as people like to call it, performative uh things oh yeah no i definitely agree performative activism is something that i am looking around and seeing a lot of right now and i just i tell people to caution themselves when they get involved with this community because performative activism may feel good but it does more harm in the long run because if you're really not getting it then you're not being useful or helpful for the people who have to live this battle every day it's a challenge though because people want to i mean i'm a big believer in leading by example and showing people what you're doing and so there's a there's a fine line between 
being performative and doing your work in a way that people can see it and, and maybe benefit from it. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. I don't know what the, you know, there's no magic balance there, but it's just, it's one of those things to kind of ask yourself, I guess, is, you know, how are you approaching it or why are you approaching it or who your audience is? Mm-hmm. I always ask people. So when I was, I'm a social worker, as I mentioned, and one of the one things that we learn in school is, are we doing this for ourselves or are we doing this for other people? And that is what you kind of have to remind yourself of when you get involved in this work. Is it for you or is it for other people? Because if it ends up being for you, then it's not, your movement isn't going to go very far. You're going to get exhausted easily and you're going to find yourself in this performative justice versus when you're doing it for the people that are really a part of this movement that are struggling, then you kind of have, I feel like you're more revitalized in this movement. You feel it's easier to keep going. Plus you have better, a better ability to caution yourself, a better ability to like, I'm looking for the word right now, a better ability to make sure you're not going too hard. Hold yourself accountable? Yes, thank you. I was like, I was looking for the word and it was just not, <laughs> not coming to me. Well, and, and let me ask you this, you know, is there toxicity in the social justice movement? Um, yeah, I think- that, <laughs> It's a loaded question. <laughs> that's such a loaded question. I think that if any, anything that involves people is going to have toxicity. <laughs> like there's just no way around that. That is if true. That involves people is going to involve ego. It's going to involve different personalities trying to come together to get one common goal accomplished. But I think once people put their- put their egos aside, put their own intent aside and really do this for the movement, that's when better things can be accomplished. I think once people can start working together better, then we can really accomplish amazing things together. I think you put the nail, hit the nail on the head that anytime you have people together, you're going to have conflict, you're going to have toxicity, you're going to have the potential for that. And I think because we're coming together in a cause that we all feel good about, we sometimes forget to realize that there's going to be conflict. Mm -hmm. Un, you know, it's unavoidable if you have multiple people and it's a question of how do you manage it? How do you deal with it? And I think that that's a lot of internal work. Like you have to put yourself aside for the better cause. So if you don't like X, Y, and Z, being able to say, do I not like it because it's bad for the movement or do I not like it because it doesn't amplify my voice or my opinion? And then doing the work to say, okay, well, maybe my opinion isn't the only opinion in this particular conversation and I need to step aside and let this happen and continue to support even though I may not agree with it. Well, thank you, uh, Derek, for joining me today. This has been a really good conversation, I think. I think, you know, we're 
just trying to, um, you know, I, I, I always try to avoid these stock phrases that we fall into, you know, yeah. about amplifying voices and I see you and, and all of these things that are well-meaning, but, you know, once you hear it a hundred times, it's, uh, it starts to lose some of its meaning. But all I can think of to do right now is, is talk to people and hopefully some of these conversations will, will help some of the people who are watching and listening and, and plant those seeds. Mm -hmm. And I definitely agree. I think that what you're doing right now is amazing because a lot of times queer black voices aren't heard in this movement. They aren't the voices that are amplified. So giving, using your platform and using your organization to amplify those voices is beautiful because a lot of times they're not. But am I just doing it so that you'll tell me that it's amazing? <laughs> I don't think so. And that's, but that's, that's honestly as part of, you know, that's part of that self-checking of doing this work that it's like, okay, are we just doing what looks good? And we know that our allies are going to say, oh my God, you guys are doing such a great job. Or are we doing it because we, this is the work that we need to do. And, you know, you can't fall into the morass of like questioning everything. Yes. But you do have to ask yourself those questions sometimes. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. But, well, thank you very much. And uh, we'll be back with more. All right. Thank you.